Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes, our show where we tease apart what's hype, what's real in the news from our vantage point in tech. I'm Sonal. As a reminder, none of the following is investment advice, nor is it a solicitation for investors in any of our funds. Please be sure to read a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information. We'll also provide a quick situation update on the previous episode about the coronavirus outbreak in the next episode. But this week, we're covering two topics. One is... Where is the plaid of healthcare? A6NZ general partner Julie Yu covers the epic backlash from electronic health record company Epic, whose CEO sent a letter to hospitals urging them to oppose government regulations that would make it easier for patients and companies to access medical information. And it turns out that as of yesterday, as reported by Chrissy Farr on CNBC, about 60 health systems have signed the letter. But first, we're going to quickly cover the news that FICO recently announced its latest changes to the FICO credit score. But does this really matter? A6NZ FinTech general partners Angela Strange and Anisha Charya share their thoughts in the first segment, and we begin by briefly answering what is a FICO score. It was the first attempt to actually put a number around like how credit worthy is a consumer. And there's specifically five factors that go into this. There's payment history, like have you been paying your bills on time? Credit utilization, which is roughly imagine you have $5,000 of available credit. If you're using 500 of that, that's good. If you're consistently using 5,000 of that, that's bad. So those two factors, payment history, credit utilization, that's two thirds of your FICO score right there. Mm -hmm. Then there's things like your length of your credit history, just how much time have lenders been able to see you? How much new credit do you have? If you all of a sudden take out a whole bunch of new loans, that's not great. And then credit mix, like between your mortgage, your auto, credit cards, generally bad, longer term loans for your house, generally so better. So like the portfolio of your risk profile. Portfolio of your risk, yeah. So these five factors weighted differently go into FICO. And then what's happened since the launch of FICO is there's been FICO 2, FICO 3. Every four to five years, FICO comes out with a new FICO score, which is basically just a reweighting or an incorporation of some different form of data into this number. Right. And so this current version is FICO 10. What are the specific changes that were announced for this one? Yeah, so number one, it's weighted personal loans more heavily. And what they were reacting to is there's a trillion dollars of credit card debt in the U.S. And a lot of people are dealing with this by refinancing it into personal loans. And that can be a good thing. You have a lot of credit card debt at 25%. You refinance it into 12%. Great. What studies have shown, though, is that often doesn't change user spending behavior and you rack up more credit card debt. So they've gotten wiser to that. And then point two is they're going to do a better job of incorporating data over a longer period of time. So this will be good for consumers who consistently pay their bills and maybe just messed up last month. So now from your guys' perspective in the world of fintech, why does this news matter? I mean, on one hand, it seems like FICO numbers are so important. And so this is news. For the majority of America, 100 million Americans that live paycheck to paycheck, whether or not they can get access to fair credit, where many of them can't, is life-changing. And so there's a panic around, oh, will a sudden change in FICO change my ability to do that? Yes, a FICO score is something that everyone has. Yes, your number may go up or down, but actually what underlies a number, have you missed payments, what's your credit card utilization, what's the age of credit history, matters a lot more than what that three-digit number is. It's important to look at the history of FICO. So FICO, Fair Isaac Corporation, is an algorithm that was designed in the 1950s to create a score that was a proxy for credit sort of willingness to pay and to a lesser extent ability to pay. 
if you take a look at what happens now, most lenders actually make their own calculation as to who is willing and who is able to pay and in which ways. You're saying they have their own models. They have their own algorithms. So the idea of having an algorithm that other people bought and use as a proxy for creditworthiness is actually not as relevant today. Yeah. How much FICO is taken into account depends a lot on the sophistication of the lender. Good lenders will use FICO as an indication and they will build very robust models around it. So one, FICO doesn't matter as much. And two, changes to FICO will matter even less. because mo- Well, their models are very, very robust. So they're not just going to swap in a whole new FICO model. And you want to know the most used FICO? It's FICO 8 that was released in 2009. That's like 11 years ago. Exactly. So FICO could come out with changes, but it takes a very long time before they ripple through the industry. And then mortgages, they're using FICO 2, FICO 3, FICO 4, and again, as just one factor. This myth that this one number of FICO makes or breaks whether you're able to get credit just isn't true. But what is true that comes out of this news is it's important to not take on too much debt, pay your debt on time, and the changes to FICO 10 are reflecting some of that. I think the other way to look at this, though, is that FICO and the credit system is a game. It's not a destiny. If you've got a 600 FICO, that doesn't mean that you're destined to always be in trouble financially or have limited access to credit. It actually usually means you don't understand what the underlying system is or how to play the game. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, here's an example. The most important thing for your credit score is typically your age of credit history. And the best way to actually boost your age of credit history is to be added as an authorized user to someone who has a long age of credit history. So this is why parents will add their kids Uh, as authorized users on their cards, it bootstraps their credit. So there are all of these hacks that if you know them, you can actually see your score improve significantly. I'm going to defend the score for one point here. So flashback 50, 100 years, right? What were credit decisions made on? Does your kid play little league with the banker that you know? Has your grandfather been banking there Do for three in the generations? Same neighborhood, right? Like it was the most discriminatory practices. There's entire banks that started up, like for instance, Bank of America used to be Bank of Italy. They would make loans to Italian immigrants that none of the bankers would lend ah, to. Yeah, right. That's right. True. And so this is a very imperfect score. But it's at least a score based on, in theory, data-driven factors that are not your race, your gender, where you live, et cetera. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's definitely an improvement. I just think it matters less than we talk about and is commonly held. Look, at the end of the day, there's two things that drive your score. It's your willingness to pay and your ability to pay. And actually, it's much more of a measure of your willingness than it is your ability. So you could take my grandmother, who has a 720 credit score, and you could take Jeff Bezos, who has a 720 credit score. Their means and their ability are Very dramatically different, different right. but their willingness may actually be exactly right, the same. Right. So what I'm really hearing both of you say is that these are changes. They're going to take a long time to happen. They may not even matter in the big picture, especially since companies have their own models, but they do matter in the sense that if you think about the evolution of how people have given credit over the years, and you said, Anish, that this was started in the 50s, that actually makes perfect sense from what you said, Angela, because the banking system in the 50s is when people started leaving their hometowns and moving to cities. And there was more American mobility. It was actually the peak of American mobility, I believe. And now what I hear you guys saying is that now we're entering a new era where we have new data sources. And now we don't necessarily need this outdated model. So this is the next shift. So my question for you is where does this come in into the big picture of thinking about alternative data sources? Yeah, so like there's so much to think about for alternative data. You know, the stories about rent and utility being used to drive FICO scores up. 
are kind of bullshit. The reason is that most of the other things that are on your credit card are a measure of your willingness to pay, whereas rent and utility is actually a measure of your ability to pay because everyone needs to sleep under a roof and everybody typically needs access to their cell phone, which is why most lenders don't consider it in the same way that they do things like credit card payments. But I do think it's important and powerful. I think it's just more of an international story than a U.S. story. First of all, in the U.S., most lending decisions are not based on alternative data. They're primarily based on your credit score and your credit report, actually less your credit score, more your credit report per our entire conversation. If you take a look at alternative data in non-US countries, it's a great way to actually bootstrap a lending business and to start to get a proxy for how creditworthy a consumer is. The problem is the US system is really based on taking credit and then being able to securitize and resell it. And the way that it's actually analyzed and priced is based on a standard set of data. So it's very difficult to introduce a product in the U.S. that uses alternative data, which is why we don't see more of it. I think it's funny that in 2020, we're still calling it alternative data. It's just data. Yeah, that's a good point. And the world we were, has changed. We were Boom. very limited. <laughs> you guys want to high five each other while you're here? <laughs> we were very limited in the types of data that we could get 50 years ago. And now we have reams of data. So it's more a question of what data is the most predictive. And we have lots of smart lenders, smart entrepreneurs, smart startups, smart incumbents, smart academics, trying to figure out what data is actually the most predictive. For instance, there's a recent study that came out that looked at cash flow streams. And it's potential that that is a more predictive. So I think this is just going to be a continually evolving study towards what signals should we use. And now we have millions of them to determine who should we lend to. And it's all data. Okay, so bottom line it for me. I've heard some really strong messages from both of you on the significance or not significance of this news around the FICO score. The bottom line is that FICO and Fair Isaac has a lot of historical significance, and, and really did change the way that we access credit. It just doesn't matter that much anymore. Today, your FICO score is something that you may look at, and it may sort of make you feel better or worse, depending on what those three digits say on that given day, but it's not actually going to impact your ability to access the financial system that much. That's great, you guys. Well, thank you for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Thank you. Thank you. So this segment of 16 Minutes, we're talking about the recent news that Epic's CEO sent a letter. Epic is actually one of the market-leading electronic health record vendors. And basically, the letter was urging hospitals to sign a letter disapproving of the healthcare data sharing rules that were proposed by the Department of Health and Human Services. And the timing is interesting because the proposed rules are currently under White House review, and they would allow patients to do a lot more with their data. And so that's a very high-level summary of the news. Now, let's quickly talk about this letter. Yes, this was the letter heard around the world in healthcare. <laughs> it's coming at the 11th hour with guns blazing on a rule that's been out there for just about a year in the context of a law that was passed many years ago. And to be clear about where that was coming from, that was coming from this idea of opening up these healthcare records. It came out of the ONC, the Office of National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medical Services. That's right. And these are government agencies that oversee a majority of healthcare spend and healthcare operations in our country. And it was specifically in the context of what's called the 21st Century Cures Act, which ah, was passed in 2016. We've actually had a podcast with the two bipartisan Upton and Walden, the two advocates of that. Actually, we've had them on to talk about that. Yeah. So the rule that this letter is in reaction to is actually one of the means by which we seek to implement some of that act. 
What are the claims at a high level? You know, one is healthcare costs will rise because of the impact of this rule. Another is that care will suffer, which again is a very audacious claim. And then third is that patients and families will lose control of their healthcare records. So to go one by one, one of the challenges of health tech, especially those who are selling into the provider side of the market, you really are contending with, you know, these nonprofit organizations with razor thin margins. And you genuinely do have to be very, very conscious of not adding high costs and actually delivering a solution that truly has ROI that's demonstrable. I find it funny that what's the one health IT category that actually has, I think, captured the most revenue opportunity EHRs, within the provider space? Electronic the health records. Basically, you're saying this claim is wrong and disingenuous. Yep. And then let's glom the two together. Care will suffer and patients and families will lose control of yes. their healthcare records. I think most patients, our reaction to this was, what do you mean? We don't even have control of our records today, yes. right? And like, that's actually the whole purpose of, of right. this rule is to give us more agency in this whole equation. What do you make of the privacy concern though? That sounds like a very legitimate argument. Very to legitimate. Me. When it comes to things like medical records that actually have quite a bit of contextual detail about your life status that could be very much used for nebulous and, and nefarious means. I would also make the argument though to counter that people use the word apps like it's a bad word. And at the end of the day, they're brands. And if you're a legitimate brand, you're gonna act very quickly. Yeah. It's fascinating to me that regulation and politics between two major countries could never move this quickly, and yet TikTok fast in order to keep the US market is willing to replace the leadership and willing to re-headquarter it and all kinds of things. Yeah, and a version of that here is that there actually is a whole economy right now around companies building from the ground up as interoperable systems. So rather than rely on the EHRs opening up data that they've collected from different places, why not just go to those places? When you think about what is truly uniquely stored in, in medical record data that might not be available through other means, it's really the doctor's narrative, right? Like the context, the style, the true sort of qualitative aspects of things. The quick analogy that I thought of as an ex-engineer was like, if you had source code to a system and you had just the code versus the code plus your comments, right? And and even like the pull requests and all of the sort of the dialogue that occurs around a a given line of code, what serves you better against what use cases? Like for what reasons would you actually need the narrative and the comments and whatnot versus if you were just simply trying to implement a system, wouldn't you just be better off getting the code itself? So I think there's a bit of that for us to discuss as an ecosystem is what's the true value? Like is the juice worth the squeeze? And can we just get the same value from other means? Well, I want to actually ask you about this interoperability term. I mean, it's a thing that people throw around all the time. What does that concretely mean in this context? Yeah, from a data perspective, interoperability refers to a number of things. One is interoperability of the billions of transactions that occur every year across the healthcare system between payers and providers and self-insured employers and all sorts of different entities. That is one type of interoperability that allows people to essentially conduct commerce, let's call it. So that's sort of one layer of it. Another layer of it is this notion of APIs that allow third parties to build atop the systems of record. That's a big area of focus for this particular rule. And then, you know, the general concept of liquidity of medical information, which you've talked about on this podcast too. Let's specifically talk about medical records as a container of information and why that matters, because you're basically saying that that's like the real atomic unit of analysis here. That's a great question in terms of when you think about what is a medical record, a focus of these rules is really on the medical record that sits in the electronic health record. But, you know, on the broader macro scale, what's so exciting about where we are in healthcare today is that the very definition of what constitutes medical data is changing. And so once we get through this cycle of debate, then I think very quickly we're going to have to move to, well, all those rules make sense for the atomic unit of a medical record that sits in the legacy EHR systems. But what about all of this other data that's sitting out there in the wearables landscape, in the self-reported information landscape? They might have completely different characteristics and requirements. I'm so glad you're bringing that up because now let's take it, connect it back because 
That's exactly the question. And particularly when we think about the API economy. So you mentioned the API, which is application programming interface. And the broader picture here though, is, and we've talked about the API economy a lot, is you think about them as sort of building Lego blocks for innovation, where people can kind of combine them and recombine them in different ways. And this, by the way, plays across all sectors, mm-hmm. not just healthcare. So most recent example is in fintech with Visa acquiring Plaid. And so the healthcare industry, Epic doesn't want the Plaid of healthcare to come up. That's right. But the reason it matters to your point about what is a medical record, and then you have this device landscape and everything else, is when you do connect all these dots across all these different people, players in the ecosystem through APIs or application programming interfaces, that is when you get the maximum of what is possible from interoperability. Yeah. When you think about popular conversation about healthcare, a lot of it has to do with healthcare is so expensive. It's actually like one of the most inefficient industries when it comes to labor productivity, et cetera. That to me is actually one of the major promises of this concept of an API. Like I actually spend a very significant amount of my time as an entrepreneur sitting next to these administrators and seeing like what they do on a day-to-day basis. And it's literally paper pushing. Like people who have been trained might even be clinicians and their day-to-day job is getting faxes, transcribing them manually. The only reason that we can't do it automatically is because consumers don't have access to systems that actually are connected via APIs and just what kind of impact that would have on our cost structure. So basically healthcare is one of the industries like education that is most victim to what's called Bommel's cost disease. And in that context, the API is the sword that can punch through Bommel's cost disease where software can finally penetrate through. But it's interesting, the Epic CEO's letter argues that you can actually have some of these things because they are a software company at the end of the day. So why isn't it breaking through? And she makes the point that we fully support helping patients have access to the data that in fact, she tells the hospitals, your patients have been able to download their health information since 2010. And at the end, she says, Epic interoperates with thousands of third-party products and apps. By the way, they also have stopped collaborating with Google Cloud. So that's a sidebar. An Epic executive said, the primary beneficiaries of this rule are venture capitalists and others taking advantage of patient data. What would you say to that given the politics of all this? Because let's face it, everyone has a stake in this at some point. Yeah, I think there's actually a specific clause in the rules that I believe this person was reacting to versus the, like sort of the entirety of the thing, which is there is actually a clause specifically around screenshot sharing in direct reaction to the fact that many of these uh, large vendors actually have a lot like sort of contractual obligations on the part of their customers to not share screenshots. When you're a developer trying to integrate with another system, one of the most useful things you can do is actually see how workflows operate in that system such that you can map your system to that. Yeah. And I remember one of my customers actually literally got uh, their hand slapped directly by senior leadership at one of these EHR companies because they shared a screenshot with us. And so there's this culture of we need to hide our true trade secrets, our IP, et cetera. I think the definition of what constitutes a trade secret and an IP is perhaps the thing to be argued about here. And this is also credit to Epic and other EHR companies who have built tremendous businesses. And to think that I, as an entrepreneur, could just take one screenshot and reverse engineer their business, you know, I think that's a pretty um, ambitious goal. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that just happened just this Monday is that the ONC annual meeting took place in Washington, D.C. That's right. And actually, it was a very busy week in D.C. There was another meeting as well with the OMB that was facilitated by the Karen Alliance, which we've talked about in the past. Mm, Yes, Um, that's right. They are an an industry alliance of players who have an interest in driving interoperability and data sharing. And what was interesting about these meetings was the very visible absence of Epic. Oh, they weren't even there? I didn't even realize that. Nope. But also the fact that there was such heavy, robust representation from literally everyone else in the industry. So health systems, health plans, all the incumbents, as well as big tech representation from the likes of Google, Apple, Microsoft, Salesforce, as well as other EHRs and other health IT and health tech vendors were at this very unique moment in time 
time where these players are voluntarily getting into the same room together. These companies that historically have been almost at odds with each other yeah. in terms of what their uh, relative roles might be in this market are explicitly saying we want to do commerce together and that the federal government should pave the way for us to accomplish that. So that's a significance. The other interesting note, though, is that the HHS secretary, the Health and Human Services secretary, Alex Azar, was saying at that meeting, quote, scare tactics are not going to stop the reforms we need, end quote. So bottom line it for me, how should we think about this letter, this news, this current moment with these new rules coming out by the first quarter of this year, I think? What's the bottom line? Yeah, the train has left the station. I think at this point, it's fairly inevitable that some form of these rules will be put into place because the market itself is already operating in this sense. And I think we should acknowledge that for better or for worse, the primary thing that has actually driven change in healthcare is top-down regulation and policy change. So from that lens, super optimistic that this rule is yet another version of that where you're going to see innovation at all layers of the stack. How can we ever seek to achieve the true mission of engaging patients in a better way to improve their health if we don't have that core infrastructure laid down? It's so common to hear everyone in the healthcare lament the fact that healthcare is always 20 years behind everything else. I always like to say that I will know that we have made it in healthcare when I hear from someone in like the banking industry or some other industry say, we want to do it the way healthcare does. That's great. Thank you for joining this episode of 16 Minutes, Julie. Thanks so much, Sonal. 